Good Morning Nancy is a horror movie podcast, so it may not be for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Good morning, Nancy. My name is Gracie. And I'm Abby. And if you're new to the show, welcome. This is season 10, episode 7, and we are so excited for you to join us. Gracie and I have been friends since forever, and we love talking about our favorite horror movies together and with you. All while drinking a nice cup of coffee. Today, we'll be discussing two movies within the Toho-produced Godzilla franchise. 1964's Mothra vs. Godzilla, also known as Godzilla vs. The Thing, and 1971's Godzilla vs. Hedora, a.k.a. Godzilla vs. The Smog Monster. (laughs) Smog. Smog. Mothra was directed by Ishiro Honda and written by Shinichi Sekizawa. Hedora was written and directed by Yoshimitsu Bano, with Takeshi Kimura credited as a writer as well. We're not shy about spoilers, so if you haven't seen these films, we highly suggest that you pause this episode and watch them. Specific trigger warnings for this episode can be found in the show notes. Okay, are you still here? Great, then let's get this morning started. Abby, would you please be so kind as to read the brief plot summaries for both films? I sure will. Okay, so this is the brief plot for Mothra vs. Godzilla. One morning, a large monstrous egg appears on a beach in Japan. Not knowing who or what it belongs to, two greedy businessmen claim it and plan to show it off at an amusement park. Eventually, some journalists learn from Shobijin, tiny twin priestesses, (laughs) that the egg belongs to the kaiju called Mothra, who lives on an island off of Japan. The Shobijin beg the journalists to help them get Mothra's egg back to her, but they are powerless. To make matters worse, Godzilla appears from underground, ready to cause more destruction to Japan, as well as to Mothra's egg! Dun, dun, dun! (laughs) Will Mothra be able to stop Godzilla from creating havoc on the country? Will she get her egg back? Will she even survive the fight? (laughs) If not... Who then is strong enough to fight Godzilla? <laughs> okay, so here's the plot for Godzilla versus Hedorah. An alien life form appears on Earth and begins to feed off of pollution until she grows into an incredibly large blob. Nicknamed Hedorah by a young child named Ken, Hedorah begins to cause death and destruction all over Tokyo. Ken starts having visions of Godzilla fighting Hedorah and predicts that Godzilla will save humanity and stop the alien blob. Godzilla does show up to fight, but the popular kaiju seems to have met his match. Will the King of Monsters be able to kill Hedorah before she causes more death, or will Godzilla need the help of some human scientists to stop her? Ooh, thank you, Abby, for those lovely plot summaries. Yeah. Okay, let's get into the production of these films. 
so a brief history on the Godzilla movies slash franchise, like where these all began. Uh, according to Tim Cook, by now it's barely worth repeating that Godzilla, Toho Studios of Japan's great gift to popular culture, was born of America's use of the atomic bomb upon Japan in 1945. And according to Kimi Yam, when the monster Godzilla, or Gojira, appeared before Japanese audiences in 1954, many left the theater in tears. The fictional creature, a giant dinosaur once undisturbed in the ocean, was depicted in the original film as having been aggravated by the hydrogen bomb. Its heavily furrowed skin and scales are imagined to resemble the keloid scars of survivors of the two atomic bombs that the U.S. dropped on Japan nine years earlier to end World War II. Kimi Kimi Yam continues and and says... American audiences, however, had the opposite reaction, finding comedic value in what many interpreted as a cheesy monster movie. Quote, most Americans think if you left the movie in tears, it was just because you laughed so hard, says William Sutsui, author of Godzilla on My Mind, 50 Years of the King of Monsters. And uh, he told this to NBC Asian America. The stark contrast reflects how Hollywood took the Japanese concept and scrubbed it of its political message before presenting it to American audiences to deflect from the U.S. decision to drop the bombs, critics say. So, yeah, this movie was um, basically a... uh, I mean, it, it was sad. It was a sad movie. I mean, if you watched this movie, we're not talking about this movie today, but if you watched this movie, which I highly recommend... It is greatly disturbing um, for a 50s movie because um, you see like the uh, innocent civilians are like screaming and sobbing. And so they're like in in absolute complete terror. And it's like it's a little bit it's a little bit uh, overwhelming. If you watch the original uh, Gojira, if you watch the American version, which is called Godzilla King of Monsters, um, they they whitewash it completely, and um, they of even add, <laughs> right. They even add in like American characters, like they edit American characters into the film. Like it's pretty, it's it's a, it's an abomination. <laughs> what the heck? Yeah, it is. Um, so yeah. Uh, according to Daniel Oberhaus. Quote, considering its somber themes, Godzilla was an amazing success in Japan. The film single-handedly created an entire genre, which is called kaiju, that focuses on the misadventures of usually giant monsters, unquote. And according to the Wikipedia page dedicated to the Godzilla franchise, the initial series of films are named after the Showa period in Japan, as all of these films were produced before the Showa Empire, Hiroshito's death in 1989. Uh, the article continues saying, starting with the film Ghidorah, the three-headed monster from 1964, Godzilla began evolving into a friendlier, more playful anti-hero. <laughs> and as years went by, it evolved into an anthropomorphic superhero, unquote. Wow. 
yeah, that was something because I know nothing about this franchise. I learned everything I know now <laughs> while researching this episode. And I was really confused. I was like, wait, why? How is Godzilla first a, a, a bad guy? And now he's a soup. He's literally a superhero in Hedorah. <laughs> like, oh my God. That kid, yeah. That kid calls him Superman. <laughs> and I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> Quite the character Just arc. <laughs> character arc whiplash. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, so this is why when we talk about these movies, Godzilla is kind of a bad guy in the Mothra movie, but like I said, a superhero in Hedorah. So, again, it'll be a character arc whiplash when you watch these back to back. And according to Don Kay, Mothra was the first of the kaiju to receive title billing alongside Godzilla in 1964's Mothra versus Godzilla. She was the first of the major kaiju to share the screen with the King of Monsters, who had previously only fought the relatively lesser monster, I think it's pronounced Anguirus. I don't know. Everyone's <laughs> <looks> right. <laughs> all the kaiju fans are screaming at me and typing angry comments on our social Aww. media right now. Sorry. Sorry, sorry not everybody. sorry. It's. <laughs> Ang, ang, nope, I'm not even try it. Forget it. Uh, <laughs> that was in 1955. And then uh, Godzilla had another movie called Godzilla Raids Again. And then, um, oh, sorry. So he fought that monster in 1955 in Godzilla Raids Again. And then there's an American-created King Kong movie uh, from 1962 called King Kong versus Godzilla, which technically doesn't count because it's American-made. It's not part of Toho. So... Ultimately, like Mothra is was technically the first monster to share billing with Godzilla. And she ultimately became second only to Godzilla in terms of total screen appearances while also becoming the only kaiju of the Toho universe to get her own spin-off series. Ooh, get it girl. I know. <laughs> She's super popular. Um I do want to say that her theme song Mothra, yeah, Mothra, which is great. I love um, it. It's so good. I listen to it on repeat when I'm folding laundry. <laughs> it's great. Um, that song is as recognizable as, let's say, I would say like the Star Wars theme in America. Wow, that's so cool. Yeah. So everybody like knows mothra's theme song in japan it's like built into their pop culture basically amazing whether they've seen mothra or not the movies or whatever so yeah it's or like na 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 batman you know everyone knows that in america right yeah it's like everyone knows mothra's song which i thought was kind of cool that is cool Aww. according to nalvik reviews quote Instead of carrying the message from Gojira or even Godzilla Raids Again, Mothra vs. Godzilla was intended for simple entertainment. While the first two films were without a doubt rooted in popular cinema aesthetics, there was still an intent to convey the anti-nuclear message or a depiction of the post-war Japan, unquote. And I, I respectfully disagree that it's just camp cinema. I, it's yeah. not. Yeah. Uh, but I do agree that the themes in Mothra versus Godzilla are easier to digest than the first Godzilla movie. Yes. Um, but we'll talk more about that. 
According to Don Kay, Mothra was initially created for the screen through two different kinds of practical effects. The larval form was a large puppet operated by six stuntmen crawling in a single file, while the adult version was a wire-operated mechanical puppet with radio-controlled legs added in later films. Her origins have changed over the years, while her powers have included enormous blasts of air generated by her wings, a poisonous yellow powder called scales uh, that can suffocate her enemies, and psychic abilities. And of course, the silken web she can spray in her larval form to immobilize her opponents, unquote. (laughs) (laughs) I love that scene where the the twin, her twins are are just... Like, oh my gosh! Shooting the larva, <laughs> shooting Godzilla with their silk. Yeah. And Luke, Luke, and I were watching that one together, and he was just like, "Wow, look at those little babies go!" They're <laughs> 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 taking him down. <laughs> amazing. It is amazing. Okay, so let's jump ahead to 1971, and I think six Godzilla movies later. Oof. I know Godzilla is like the Marvel. It's like Marvel, basically. The Godzilla franchise is like the Marvel franchise. Yes. <laughs> it's like there's a ton of movies in a very short amount of time. Yep. Um, according to the Wikipedia page dedicated to the film Godzilla vs. Hidorah, quote, the film marked director Yoshimitsu Bano's directorial debut. However, the budget for Godzilla vs. Hidorah was significantly lower than previous Godzilla films. Bano was only given 35 days to shoot the film and only had one team available to shoot both the drama and monster effects scenes. Oh my god! I know. Veteran Godzilla director Ishiro Honda, who directed Mothra vs. Godzilla, was later asked by producer Tomiyuki Tanaka uh, to watch Bono's rough cut and provide advice, unquote. So they didn't really trust him with a Godzilla movie, I guess, because it was his first film ever. Uh, so <laughs> I know. So I feel kind of bad for this guy because it's like, I, I really feel like this film is pretty good i know i do (laughs) it's not like obviously it's not like oh it's like not amazing but it is i don't know it is pretty solid (laughs) it's a pretty solid film so according to brooke akazaki okazaki and sean rhodes for their incredible book japan's green monsters environmental commentary in kaiju cinema Quote, the environmental message presented in the film departs considerably from earlier Kaiju Ega. And the first major widely circulated retrospective review of Godzilla vs. Hidora appeared in, 1970, in the 1978 book, The 50 Worst Films of All Time by Harry Medved. As its title suggests, Medved's <laughs> review is less than kind, as base, he bases his assessment on the poor English dubbing of the film, picking some of the worst and consequently more most amusing translations to use as quotes, unquote. So yeah, Godzilla versus Hedorah got a bad rap because its English version sucks ass. <laughs> and I will tell you this, I watched both the Japanese version and the English dub version, and I wanted to rip my ears off of my head. The English version is so ter- is terrible. It's terrible. It's awful. So don't watch that. <laughs> oh my god. S- sub is better than dub. We all know this. Yep. Yep. 
According to Daniel Oberhaus, who mentions an interview with the director, quote, Godzilla was being aimed more at children with things like Godzilla dancing and the audience had been shrinking because of this. And this was what Yoshimitsu Bano uh, said to Sci-Fi. And this is what he he said this um, right before he died, which is kind of. It's, it's kind of nice that he was able to talk a lot about this film before he passed. Um, but uh, so Hidora versus Godzilla was the 11th Godzilla movie. And Bono wanted to include a message about pollution that adults would enjoy as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's something that I thought was really interesting was that these films very slowly but surely started to lose their political messages. And they were just sort of about monsters fighting with maybe some human drama in the middle um but yeah bono wanted to change that he wanted to bring back the political message he sure did he's like "Mm, you think these films are silly dead teenagers yep (laughs) yeah yeah it's tense (laughs) yeah Mothra versus Godzilla was a success in Japan with critics and audiences and Hidora's reception however was like more of a mixed bag according to a review of Mothra versus Godzilla by There Goes Tokyo quote the criti- the critique of capitalism isn't exactly subtle yes <laughs> but like a good twilight zone episode the bluntness of this social commentary is warranted by the horrible wretched truth of the world we all live in unquote and according to american kaiju godzilla versus hedora is a quote confused godzilla non-epic that doesn't seem to be sure just who it was made for in the first place unquote <sighs> Harsh, man. <laughs> wow. Okay. I don't think it's that bad, but that's just me. I don't either. What the heck? <laughs> okay. Let's get into our discussion. First of all, I think I need to clarify why, out of all the Godzilla movies, we're talking about these two in particular. And that's because the two kaiju who fight Godzilla in these movies are women. Maybe. Maybe. They could also be non-binary. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I think that these monsters can be read as feminine and or queer. Yes. So that's sort of why I wanted to pick these two films. Now, in all of the Japanese films, the kaiju Godzilla dukes it out with are never actually given genders. At least that's according to um, uh, William M. Tsutsui. They are, for the most part, called, quote-unquote, it, or its, you know. Um, But most of the Godzilla creators, fans, and scholars refer to Mothra as female. And the creator of Hidora, right, Bono, uh, he said that she was intended to be female. Uh, And Godzilla is very often called a he in the English dubbed films, but we know all, you know, sub is better than dub. So really anything is possible. Godzilla could also be it or they or she as well. We don't know. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Yeah. Very true. Right. Well, gender is a construct. So, you know. Yeah. Um, but for this episode, um, I'll be calling Mothra and Teodora she and they, 
and Godzilla he and they. Just for just for reference, everyone. Okay, let's talk about Mothra first. Uh, Mothra is the only girl boss that matters, <laughs> according to uh, Chingy Nia. But yeah, Mothra, I, we've talked about how girl boss is like overrated. Like it's, <laughs> it's more so something that uh, media corporations use to get women to invest in their TV shows, movies. You know, Disney is a huge... Uh, is sort of, I hate to say the villain, but they're kind of a villain when it comes to girl boss movies for the most part, because um, they're trying to quote unquote make up for the fact that they did a lot of fairy tale movies and stuff, which I don't know. I it, it Listen, girl boss is only here to make you buy things. <laughs> it's, Correct. It, it's a capitalist construct. Like it is only been, it's only been created so that you will purchase things yeah don't fall for it um (laughs) but mothra is a girl boss in the best way possible (laughs) yes yes um according according to victoria pontenza quote as i watched these movies i was even more certain she mothra was my favorite of the classic kaiju monsters my admiration for mothra grew because she is a strong feminine presence that seems necessary in these movies although mothra is powerful and deadly she is also beautiful bringing elegance and a sense of wonder to the monsters uh they go on to say mothra is one of the most consistent characters usually taking on the role of a natural protective force she seems bound to earth and must keep it safe whereas other monsters were created by science or potentially from another world unquote and according to barney buckley quote she is occasionally an ally to godzilla but more often than not engages in conflict with the king of monsters due to the potential threat he represents to Earth and its people, unquote. So Mothra is very much a protector of others, especially those who are close to her and understand her the most, which are her children, the natives of Infant Island, where she is from, and the Shobijin, the magical little priestesses who can telepathically communicate with her. Uh, There are also some films where she telepathically communicates with humans, too, I guess. But she is the ultimate good psychic monster mother, basically. According to Barney Buckley, despite having wrought destruction worthy of any Toho Daikaiju, she is almost always portrayed as a kind and benevolent creature, unquote. And to quote Chinginia, Mothra is simply a supernatural moth goddess. For the most part, she is just vibing. Only wreaking, <laughs> only wreaking havoc and laying waste to cities when someone disturbs her colorful egg or kidnaps the Shobijin. She never starts shit, but she's always ready to finish it, unquote. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. She could also be a representation of Mother Nature for this reason, too. Like, sure. She does everything she can to protect her island and its inhabitants, but she is also destructive in that same way, like... Sure. She'll kick your ass. Oh, yeah. She's she's not afraid to fight. I mean, she's not afraid to fight to the death either. Yes. She dies a lot, which we'll talk <laughs> about later. I know. Um, it's very sad, but it's, like, hopeful at the same time. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it's pretty clear that Mothra is absolutely perfect. She, I like to think of her as, like, the beautiful best friend that you have that always looks good in pictures, and you just scream, got it! 
Yes. <laughs> like anytime she does literally anything. <laughs> yes. And you love this friend because in this sick, twisted world, she shines. And that's Mothra. <laughs> and Chinginia says, quote, when I see Mothra erupt from a cocoon in an explosion of glitter and light to immediately <laughs> zap Godzilla in the eye or drag him by their tail, I think to myself, now that's a woman. <laughs> When I watch her flutter through the sky to behead a cyborg alien dinosaur before setting him ablaze, I know that's real girl power. That's feminism. Unquote. <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. <laughs> so the she best. rocks. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So I also have to talk about the science side of moths and Mothra because I am a big nerdy dingus and I think... <laughs> It's really interesting that the creators decided to use a moth for one of the kaiju. Mm. Um, Moths have always been fascinating to me, and I think here is a good spot to point out some of the cool creature features that make moths so goddamn cool. So, apparently, in arthropods like moths, females tend to be bigger in size, which is weird because in mammalian species... A lot of the time, males tend to be bigger than females. Um, it's not always the case within the animal kingdom, as males are sometimes smaller because it makes the most sense metabolically and all that fun sciencey stuff. However, scientists have noted the difference in size when it comes to moth, but it largely remains a mystery why female moths grow to such large proportions compared to males. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, they hypothesize that this happens when moths reach their final stage and not when they are caterpillars. So the change happens when they reach, like, their final form. Mm. So that being said, we could assume that Mothra is, like, this cool like crone stage female in her final form and she is so wise and powerful because she's made it out in the wilds for so long and she is cunning and swift and i think that we could gather a lot from that metaphorically because when we start out as these little teeny tiny caterpillars we're largely on equal footing so we're sort of like rudderless and young and just trying to figure out how to survive in the world. And then we go into this phase in our life where we can kind of sit back and look at everything and take it all in. And we'll call this our cocoon phase. <laughs> and then from that, we emerge stronger and wiser beings. Now, I am only speaking from the perspective of a bisexual white person that identifies as a female, but... I feel as though this can apply to all of us. Mm. We kind of go through the hardships to become Mothra or we emerge as Godzilla and we use what we know to either destroy entire ecosystems or bring balance back to our surroundings. So it kind of like takes on this supernatural element. Like when we think about the science behind moths and their biology and we look at Mothra, and I love that. I love how these films tend to combine, like, these scientific aspects, but, like, put a supernatural twist on it. I think that that is one of the coolest concepts in horror. Ugh. Sure, yeah. And, like, speaking of, like, supernatural, <laughs> <laughs> Mothra is 
an actual Jesus. <laughs> like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> because she comes back from the grave, essentially. Like, according to Barney Buckley, Mothra's life cycle, particularly the tendency of an, I think it's Imago, mm-hmm. uh, their death uh, to coincide with the larvae, larvae hatching, echoes that of the phoenix, resembling re- resurrection and suggesting divinity. So like you were saying, um, even the life cycle is like made put into this film, like the death of the female moth. Uh, it happens around the same time her babies show up. Yes, <laughs> you know? yeah. And that really, I guess, really happens. And yeah, according to Robert Ito, there's even this theme of Christian imagery associated with her. Uh, and this is from William Setsui, author of Godzilla on My Mind, 50 Years of the King of Monsters. Uh, in Godzilla movies, you see very few people getting killed after those early films. It's very antiseptic in many ways. But Mothra in particular, it just doesn't fit her image for her to be killing people, unquote. Mm-hmm. She is an actual, like, she do- goes through all the stages that an actual, like, regular moth goes through. Mm-hmm. But it is, yeah, like you said, it's supernatural. It's pretty neat. Yes. Quote, what makes her so much more interesting than some of the other kaiju is that she sort of represents that endless cycle of life, death, and rebirth. And this is from Michael Doherty, who directed the American film Godzilla King of Monsters. He also directed Trick or Treat and Krampus. Doherty says, so even though she is this reputation she has this reputation of sacrificing herself in every film if you really think about it she never really dies ever and i think she knows that unquote yeah Yeah, i know uh but according to brooke okazaki and sean rhodes although some writers applaud mothra's unique place within the kaijuega genre Sitsui largely sums up the wider view of Mothra when he states, Mothra repeatedly appears as a selfless goody-goody, unquote. I know. Well, I also love that her name can be seen as kind of a play on words, like Mm -hmm. Mothra sounds a lot like mother. Sure. And she is just that. She's a force and she's scary in a lot of ways, but also gentle and protective. And I think for that reason, she's got to be one of my favorite kaiju. Yes. Honestly. Uh, yeah. I I do truly love Mothra the most. She's so pure. I can't help it. <laughs> She's the best. She is. <laughs> okay, so now that we've talked about Mothra, let's talk about Hidora, who is very much different from Mothra. <laughs> Hidora is a smog monster, and she uh, has an interesting message about a lot of things, even counterculture, which I thought was kind of neat. According to Daniel Oberhaus, quote, Hidora is a product of industrial pollution that grows stronger by feeding on the smog emitted by factories and vehicles. As it gains strength, Hidora moves from the ocean to the land before finally learning to fly, instantly killing anyone with sulfuric acid as it passes overhead. <sighs> In one scene, a group of schoolgirls collapse as the smog monster flies over the school. A not-so-subtle reference to a real-life incident that had happened in Japan involving a group of schoolchildren who collapsed from exposure to toxic smog, unquote. Yikes. 
Oberus also talks with William Setsui, who wrote Godzilla on my mind. Oberus quotes him saying, Godzilla movies are generally pretty sterilized for their youth audiences. There's not a whole lot of actual violence and you never see people dying. In Godzilla versus Hitora, you do. Yeah. It, it really underlined the threat of pollution in a very empathic way. Unquote. Okay, so let's talk a bit about the toxic smog that Hidora is supposed to represent. According to the Wikipedia page dedicated to the film, whereas Godzilla was a symbol of Japanese concerns over nuclear weapons, Hidora was envisioned as an embodiment of the Yokaichi asthma. I think that's how you say it. Yakachi asthma, I think. Uh, which was caused by Japan's widespread smog and urban pollution at the time. Unquote. And according to an art, the article Mortality and Life Expense Expectancy of Yakaichi Asthma Patients in Japan, quote, the incidence of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, COPD, and bronchial asthma began increasing in the early 1960s in the population of Yakaichi City, which was, of course, in Japan. The cause of the disease was sulfur dioxide air pollution. And it is known as the Yakachi asthma. The pollution markedly decreased by the end of the 1970s, and no new cases have been reported since 1988. Unquote. The article continues and says mortality and life expectancy were adversely affected in patients from Yakachi City, despite the fact that the air pollution problem had already been solved. Unquote. This article discusses, like, the history of the incident as well. So, Yakachi is a city with the largest population among cities and towns in my prefecture, which is like the, you know, like the county, technically, kind of thing. Um, and it's located in the center of Japan, so the heart of Japan. Wow. During World War II, naval fuel factories were constructed in the southern part of Yakachi Harbor, but were destroyed by bombing before they began to operate. In 1957, a facility created this like complex crude oil with high sulfur content, more than 3%. Eesh. Just just that. It's like, I know it sounds like a small amount, but it's not for t- sulfur content. No, no. And it did not employ suitable measures for desulfurization. The annual sulfur dioxide, SO2, emission levels exceeded 100,000 tons. Wow. Which caused air pollution with an increased concentration of sulfur oxides. By early nineteen, by the early 1960s, the incidence of respiratory diseases including bronchial asthma, increased among people living in the vicinity of the complex. And this subsequently became a major health problem in Japan. So yeah, holy shit. (laughs) And I was reading more about this on the Wikipedia page, though. Uh, But um, I guess like school children were told to hold their breath as much as possible. (laughs) What? While they were at school. What the ah, fuck? Yeah. <laughs> they could, because they couldn't, there was no way to stop it from entering their bodies except not breathing. Cute. Yes. So, A fantastic yeah, solution. This sounds oh. like some old timey advice from like back in the day when doctors said that people had ghosts in their blood 
So here's some morphine for that. Like, that's like along the same lines. Basically, yeah. Like, just you don't want to get sick, just don't breathe. You'll be fine. Okay. Sure. <laughs> just develop gills. <laughs> What's wrong with you? Grow your gills. Hurry up. Yeah. According to Okazaki and Rhodes, quote, Godzilla versus Hidora shifted the focus of the Godzilla franchise from nuclear fears to the crippling toll of rapid industrialization and its toxic pollution. When Godzilla versus Hidora opened, Japan's natural and human environments had transformed into ecological nightmares. The public and politicians were finally starting to take notice. The film therefore depicts a change that occurred simultaneously in Japanese society. The nuclear anxiety of the post-war period became supplemented by the suffocating results of Japan's own economic success, unquote. Yeah, they became their own worst enemy. Interesting. Okazaki and Rhodes continue saying, Godzilla vs. Hidora is a film rife with commentary on several levels. The movie... lombasts the dire situation faced by Japan in the early 1970s. At a crossroads, Japan must decide whether to continue its undeterred economic expansion regardless of environmental costs or focus on developing a more sustainable and ecologically minded economy. Although the film most directly addresses industrial pollution, it touches on numerous other social issues as well, including the role and power of the government in Japan. The impotence of JSDF for Japan's protection and pervasiveness of television and daily life and the place of counterculture and hippies and their inability to bring about meaningful change, unquote. Okazaki and Rhodes go on saying, although Godzilla vs. Hidora savages Japan's government, military, and media, the alternative, the hippie culture, counterculture, is shown to be no real alternative at all. The character of Yukio's death as the apparent leader of the hippies and symbol of bohemianism mirrors the treatment of the counterculture throughout the film. As we have noted in our examinations of other kaiju ega, sometimes environmental concerns blur with social critiques. In this case, Hidora depicts the hippies as a form of social pollution, not equal with the threat posed by industrial pollution, but nonetheless deserving derision. In several scenes throughout the film, Yukio, Miki, and the other and other elements of the counterculture, despite being well-intentioned, are portrayed as oblivious, ineffectual, and occasionally counterproductive. Unquote. <laughs> Honestly, when I was watching this film, I was not expecting them to be I thought they were gonna be like the heroes. Yeah. Yep. And they end up being a bunch of ridiculous children. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh the final shot undermines this optimism. Godzilla versus Hidora concludes with an image of Hidora in polluted water and text that warns of the smog monster's return. Audience are left, like in the original Godzilla, to wonder if Japan is truly safe. Uh, yeah. Uh, according to Daniel Oberhaus, for a lot of people in Japan, everyone knew that pollution was a big concern for society, but nobody wanted to be the one to raise the issue. And this is what uh, William Setsui said. Uh, but then you have a giant smog monster rampaging through Tokyo and somebody's got to do something. <laughs> because at that point, you can no longer ignore it, unquote. Yeah, I mean, it is really fascinating to me to look at what these films mean from a sociological standpoint. Also, 
coming to the realization that horror is used in this way across cultures is another reason why I love this genre so much. Like, when you want to convey something serious and very scary in the minds of people living through it while simultaneously kind of taking them out of the situation, you get films like these. And, I mean, I know... We discuss this pretty often on the show, but I think it's especially important to highlight it in other cultures, you know, besides the films that we see in the United States. Oh, sure. Yeah, that's what that's one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about a, a film from a different country. I was like, we need to broaden our horizons here. Well, yeah, absolutely, because we can learn from it. And what these films aim to do is reflect social, environmental, and political problems that subliminally get the gears turning in people's heads and you know that's another reason why people in power ban books and films on the surface that seem pretty benign but they're actually teaching us to think critically and you know when people say oh it's just a silly movie nothing else like those aren't the people that these stories are aimed at and it's a creative way to get revolutionary acts set in motion. And, you know, we'll talk about that later on in the episode, too. Um, and I know, uh, like, this sounds like a very serious perspective. But when I was watching these movies, I was like, sheesh, like, America was not the only country going through radical change and, like, changing their social landscape during this time period. And I think, in a way, that's what psychologically binds us together as humans it's the way that we use stories to make relations and show the rest of the world what's going on beyond their own backyard. I absolutely agree. That was very well said. Yeah. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so let's let's get into the fun stuff. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Queering Mothra and Hidora and even Godzilla. What? Ooh. According to Lawrence Barber, the long tradition of reading queerness in monster in monsters in film, TV, and folklore, from Bram Stoker's Dracula to Ursula the Sea Witch and Mothman, has reached a zenith in recent years. It all draws on LGBTQ people's position as the quote-unquote other in society, where for so many years we were called monsters, which led us to reclaim those we see in pop culture as our own. It affords LGBTQ people control over stereotypes that are so often applied to us through a positive tongue-in-cheek lens, unquote. And then they say, let's be clear... Mothra is that bitch. <laughs> she takes forever to get ready to go out. Uh, she can overtake straight couples hogging the footpath by flying at mock speeds. <laughs> she has bioluminescent wings and has an outfit reveal built into her life cycle. <laughs> She's dubbed the queen of monsters and is in a pan species relationship with Godzilla. <laughs> we absolutely stand. Yes. <laughs> Incredible. And according to Michael Varadi, not saying that I plan on using the fact that the new Godzilla is premiering at the start of Pride Month to convince you that Mothra is a drag icon, but she has an entrance music and she has backup <laughs> singers and she does an outfit reveal while transforming and she pulls focus from the basic monsters, unquote. <laughs> oh my God. Incredible. Yeah. According to Chingy Nia, queer people love Mothra. 
you could count her among other beautiful women of the 1960s who became gay icons like Barbara Streisand, Diana Ross, and Cher. Always a true diva, she has a dramatic outfit reveal built into her very life cycle. Yes. Even the way she fights is glamorous. She's always flapping her wings and releasing glittering poisonous scales or dazzling bolts of lightning. <laughs> Alyssa Heflin, an archivist and fellow Mothra acolyte, says she's always read Mothra as trans. Quote, in her debut movie, she destroys the phallic symbol of the Tokyo Tower in her larval form and then creates her nest inside of it. Heflin thinks the thing that about Mothra that draws queer and trans people to her, aside from her tremendous beauty, is her cycle of metamorphosis. Quote, obviously a character who changes into what's generally understood to be a quote-unquote true form is going to read as trans or queer, she says. That's easy to project, but unlike a lot of fictional characters read as trans, birth is very much key to her myth. The gigantic Mothra egg being an important facet of her story, and she doesn't really give birth to kids. She kind of just gives birth to herself. So she doesn't just undergo one metamorphosis. She's constantly undergoing that process of change that makes the metaphor hit closer to home, unquote. And Nia says, in a sense, she's both eternally her own mommy and forever her own baby, locked in a forever cycle of growth, death, and rebirth, unquote. Aww. I loved that. I was like, that made me feel cozy. I was like, so happy. I was like, yay. Yeah, <laughs> that's Mothra. actually pretty cute. Like, she's so self-reliant. I love it. <laughs> yes, she doesn't need anybody. No. Nah. She is all, yeah, I love it. Okay. So, uh, Hitora doesn't have nearly as much queer or trans theory surrounding them as much as Mothra or even Godzilla. But I chatted with my good friend Amber R.W. Knapp, who is a queer horror writer, and I asked them to help me figure out how gay Hidora is. <laughs> <laughs> At one point, Amber said in a text they sent me, quote, I don't think Hidora is uber gay, but she could be a scary power lesbian, unquote. <laughs> And I immediately sent them a clip of Andy, Andy Bernard from The Office asking, Michael, am I gay? <laughs> he doors asking, yes. good morning, Nancy, am I gay? <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, even though Hedora technically re represents smog and toxic pollution, I think she could also represent menstruation. Yes, menstruation is normal. But as a menstruating person... It sucks. I hate it. Yep. I hate it. Personally, I really fucking hate it. I feel greasy and bloated and I'm in pain. And like, listen, we're going to talk about this. Get ready. TMI right here, right now. But you know what? Fuck it. I sometimes pass large blood clots when I menstruate. And fucking Hedora kind of looks like a fucking gross blood clot. <laughs> Little Hedoras just oozing out of your vagina just fucking sucks so much. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You're not wrong. Hedora also has these two eyes that were purposefully made to look like female genitalia. 
Yes. Okay, according vagina to, eyes. <laughs> yes. According to Steven Rosenberg, when director Yoshimitsu Abano discussed the design of the creature, he explained that Hidora was female and that her eyes were designed to resemble female genitalia in hopes to make the monster unsettling to a more conservative male audience, unquote. <laughs> oh yeah, so Hidora is female, according to this director. I love the idea that the director was like, let's make a monster that really upsets the Ben Shapiros of the world. (laughs) Incredible. Give this man a medal. (laughs) Yes. Oh, my God. Um, We could really look at her as such, but like. Listen, now we're going to queer we're going to queer this girl. Um she could most like much like Mothra also be trans. And I'm pulling this quote from the amazing Amber Knapp's essay on the movie Carrie and the horrors of menstruating while trans. But I think this works for Hedora as well. So Amber says When the cycle comes around, your uterus shouts at you mockingly like Chris Harginson and the other girls in the in the locker room mocking Carrie, period, period, plug it up, plug it up, plug it up. Your period is a cruel reminder that you were born with a uterus and you have a vagina, no matter what your gender identity or gender expression are. Your period can even announce itself and potentially, quote unquote, out you in public as loudly as shouting high school girls, unquote. And Amber Knapp goes on to say, those who take birth control or those who are taking testosterone to medically transition can have their periods slow down and eventually stop. But the stop is not instantaneous and your period can come back with a vengeance if you stop taking the medications. Knapp continues, the act of having to buy tampons or pads or other items marked as feminine care can trigger stress, anxiety, and feelings of dysphoria in those who are transmasculine or any other gender that is not of the feminine variety, unquote. So Amber was kind enough to add uh, a unique take on this conversation about gender identity, Hedora. Uh, and queerness. Um, So Amber says, quote, as we've previously stated, the director Bono put a note in the script that Hedora's eyes would resemble female genitalia. Jump ahead to 2004 and the release of Godzilla Final Wars, the 28th overall Godzilla movie that was released in honor of the 50th anniversary of the original movie. Artist and creature designer Shinji Nishikawa was tasked to redesigning the kaijus for this feature, including Hidora. According to the Wikizilla, yes, you heard that correctly, <laughs> to seemingly clash with Hidora's eyes being modeled after female genitalia, Nishikawa gave Hidora an elongated tube-shaped arm modeled after male genitalia. It's almost as if the creators were trying to think of the most terrifying images they could put on the big screen and landed on a toxic sludge and landed on toxic sludge and genitalia. <laughs> Given the kaiju both have these physical elements, compares them to maybe being born as intersex. 
Pulling from the Wikipedia definition, intersex people are individuals born with any of several sex characteristics, including chromosome patterns, gonads, or genitals that, according to the Office of United Nations High Commissioner of Human Rights, do not fit typical binary notions of female, of male or female bodies. Intersex people face stigmatization and, and discrimination from birth. In some countries, particularly in Africa and Asia, this may include infanticide, abandonment, and stigmatization of families. Non-consensual medical interventions to modify the sex characteristics of intersex people take place in all countries where human rights of intersex people have been explored. Such interventions have been criticized by the World Health Organization and an increasing number of regional and national institutions. According to the estimation by Planned Parenthood, one or two out of 100 babies born in the U.S. are born intersex, and there are more than 40 known variations. Wow. In the interview, Intersex Babies Don't Need Fixing by Kimberly Zeiselman, the executive director of Intersex Advocacy Group Interact, says that, quote, people are told not to discuss being intersex. That makes intersex children feel almost freakish. And this feeling is carried into adulthood. Even with the best interests of the child in mind, parents and doctors will often relay the message to children that they are wrong and different and something to be fixed, unquote. Feeling freakish, or more aptly for this discussion, feeling like a monster, is a common and emotionally draining experience for those in the LGBTQIA community. And if an intersex person is born with a functioning uterus, ovaries, and vagina, then that person will start menstruating at puberty. So, if we want to look at Hidora as trans, intersex, or any gender other than female, Hidora could represent this trigger to non-binary people and men who menstruate. Wow. Yes. So, thank you so much again, Amber, for writing this and contributing to the episode. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Godzilla has been said to represent coming out but going back into the closet multiple times. According to Lawrence Barber, quote, in 2014's Godzilla, our titular icon was very much a butch queen (laughs) who was at the drag ball for the first time. But as we begin the new film, we learn that Godzilla has been missing in the years since the the destruction of San Francisco that saw him step in to defend humanity. Clearly, he wasn't quite ready to come out of the closet until now, unquote. And this happens not just in the 2014 and 2019 American movies, uh, which we are not going into depth about today. But Godzilla very much appears to come out of hiding in every single Godzilla movie that I've seen anyway. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Godzilla might not know exactly what their sexuality is. And I know I felt this. I used to think that I was straight for the longest time. And then I thought I was bisexual for the longest time. And then I finally figured out that I am a queer asexual. (laughs) (laughs) And it's very common for queer folks to question their sexuality and to come out as something quote unquote different every time they think they've figured it out. It's also common for queer folk to feel like they have to come out multiple times to different people. Now, 
that is super draining and frustrating. Uh, you, you know, you have to come out to your friends, then you got to come out to your family, then you can have to come out to your spouse, which I had to do, which was wild. Um, but don't worry, everything was great. And then your kid, <laughs> if you have a child, and then your coworkers, and so on and so forth, like you have to just consistently come out to everyone. Yeah. And it's exhausting. And if that's what Godzilla represents, then no wonder Godzilla is always knocking shit down every time he shows up. Because True. like overall, <laughs> the consensus among most kaiju and Godzilla fans is that Godzilla and Mothra are like a pansexual couple. So I can see how Godzilla can be read as a queer person having to come out of the closet multiple times. And it's like frustrating and it's upsetting and it's just like, I just want to break shit, you know? Yep. Yep. But I also love that there's this sweet connection between Godzilla and Mothra. Sometimes they fight because they're a couple, but most of the time they work together in these movies. Yes. Okay. So speaking of Godzilla and Mothra as a couple, according to Robert Ito, Unlike the capricious Godzilla who goes from stomping Japan to bits in one movie to protecting it in another, Mothra is always a heroine, saving Japan from reptilian hotheads like Godzilla. Which brings us to Mothra and Godzilla's weird psychic relationship and its (laughs) meaning. (laughs) According to Matt O'Connell, if Mothra's original film from 1961 is about a feminine divinity striking back and an abusive hyper-capitalistic patriarchy, which we could argue is also the main theme of its sequel, which we're talking about today... Its sequel heightens the symbolism by including an oppositional force of masculinity. The human archetypes remain the same. Our villains are exploitive, hyper-capitalistic people trying to monotonize indigenous culture. And they're opposed, once again, by good-hearted reporters and scientists. (laughs) The two most important additions, though, are the muscular counterpart to Mothra in Godzilla and an increased level of agency from the indigenous characters, unquote. And Matt O'Connell goes on to say, Godzilla and Mothra's complex relationship is based in the mythic tradition of Rio and I think it's who? H-O-O. Who? Who you? Yeah. Sure. Oh, my God. Please (laughs) destroy me in the comments. I deserve it. Opposing yet complementary beasts often incorrectly equated with a dragon and a phoenix by people whose understanding of Asian mythology comes from takeout menus. Oh. (laughs) Although uh, the dragon and the phoenix are rough physical analogs of the Ryu and the Huyu, their cultural roles and mythic connotations vary wildly. For example, while both the dragon and the Ryu are powerful reptilian beasts, one is associated with fire and the other with water, fittingly as creatures born of the conflict between the East and West. The nuclear terror and American occupation of Japan that ended World War II, Godzilla and Mothra are syncretic monsters, blending elements both from European and Asian myth. O'Connell goes on to say, although he's heavily associated with fire, Godzilla is fundamentally a water and storm deity just like the Ryu. The destruction he wreaks resembles a natural disaster as much as an actively malicious attack, and his appearance is almost always from the sea. On at least two occasions, Godzilla from 1954 and Mothra vs. Godzilla from 1964, his appearance is presaged by a mighty 
presaged by a mighty storm. The Ryu is also considered to be fundamentally male, opposed and balanced by the female Hu. Uh, and finally, O'Connell says, even though she isn't a bird, Mothra is definitely a graceful flying creature in the Hu mold. Both of them are associated with benevolence and good omens. And remember that Mothra's decision to battle Godzilla also signaled the birth of the new era of cooperation between Japan and Infant Island. Further, like the Western Phoenix, Mothra enjoys a limited sort of immortality, with her own death triggering the birth of her daughters, who will in turn become benevolent mother goddesses themselves, unquote. And according to HorrorFlora.com, with Godzilla, we see nature's wrath, a blind force of destruction that once unleashed destroys all in its way, both the guilty and innocent alike. And with Mothra, we see nature's mercy and how the natural world will provide for us even after we've savaged it, unquote. Absolutely. And um, just to kind of reinforce what you were talking about a second ago, I think this can also be representative of Japan's relationships with the outside world politically. Yes. There, there are a lot of good and bad exchanges between Japan and the rest of the world, but I mean, mainly I'm focusing on the relationship with the U.S. here. We did really terrible things to each other in World War II, yet... We have come to rely on each other despite these differences culturally and economically. And just a side note, I am not trying to diminish the things that the United States has done to Japan by saying this either. Like, we were awful to -hmm. Japanese people. And I don't want that comment that I just made to be misread as like, kind of like, oh, we we put our differences aside and like we forgave each other. No, that doesn't, that doesn't happen when you put people in internment camps. So. <laughs> Correct. Well, and they were, yes, they were Japanese, but they were Americans. Yes. They were Americans and we were, we were literally taking other Americans and putting them in camps. Yep. Yes. Yeah. But yeah, um, I do think that we have come a long way in our like partnerships and working together, but there is still a lot of work that needs to be done. And I think that this relationship with like Mothra and Godzilla, it's a little bit reflective of that in a way, because sure, yeah, Mothra is like this. Like we've mentioned several times, she's like this benevolent um, creature who, even though like she is very helpful, she's also like very strong and very destructive and um, she is a force of change. Like her whole life cycle represents change. Mm. So I don't know. I really like I really like looking at it that way. Yeah, and I mean, like, uh, in these films, Mothra represents the indigenous people that surround Japan. Yes, yep. And Godzilla sort of represents, like, yeah, that masculine power of of control, you know, mm-hmm. and, like, trying to, like, take things. Because, like, in the Mothra versus Godzilla movie, he sees her egg and he gives it, like, weird, like eyes he like yeah. looks at it like, mm. like he's, he's like i'm going to smash that thing <laughs> and mothra's like no you know yeah so it's interesting that it's like we, we all have we 
all suck in some way, shape, yeah. or form. Yes. And yes. thankfully, through film, we can kind of see the mirror image of how we treat others reflected back at us, whether we're from Japan, America, England, where, wherever, you know, yeah. like we we have these things to kind of see ourselves in them and how can we become better, Absolutely. better people. Yeah. So essentially Godzilla and Mothra are sort of a yin and yang as yeah. if you want to bring it down to like simple terms, um, which is why they thrive in, in an interspecies pansexual relationship. <laughs> yes, yes. They are opposites, but they, uh, what's the word? They complement each other. Yeah. Um, but uh, what about Godzilla and Hidora's relationship? <laughs> well, these two definitely don't jive. Um, they have a literal toxic relationship. Yeah. According to Hidora's personal Wikipedia page, quote, several authors have noted that unlike most Toho monsters, Hidora's violent acts are graphically shown to claim human victims. And the creature shows genuine amusement at Godzilla's suffering, unquote. <sighs> Yes. That was something that really kind of freaked me out when I was watching this movie. I was like, this monster is pretty vicious. <laughs> she's uh, She's got some psychopathic tendencies. Sure. sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> According to Andrew Price, this was the first film in the series to show human casualties since the original Godzilla movie in 1954. Most of the time, the victims collapse from Hidora's smog and quickly decompose albeit in a psychedelic light show kind of way. <laughs> at other times, like at the, Mount Fu- at the Mount Fuji fight, Hidora simply sprays victims with sludge, leaving 40 to 50 partially rotted teenage corpses in the grass, and all in front of young Ken's eyes. In other words, pollution, like this movie, ruins childhoods. <laughs> <laughs> yes. This movie goes, uh, goes from scenes of slapstick images of out and then to outright horror in seconds one moment godzilla swings hidora around by the tail in tokyo the next some of hidora's sludge smashes through the window of a gambling den leaving the men inside who we saw alive and healthy only a few seconds before covered in muck and frozen in agonal death poses unquote yeah I mean, I would like to say that this is also a great example of ending trauma cycles as well. Um, Godzilla destroying the monster is symbolic, no question, but it has a lot of layers. So stopping pollution, abuse, oppression, whatever you want, like take your pick. It's a moment of empowerment and I think it's very important for people, especially young people, to see um, and speaking of which, <laughs> Godzilla becomes like this protector of young people in this film, if you really think about it. Like, mm. he exacts revenge for the teenage lives lost, and that is a like pointed moment in the film that I think was totally done on purpose because this is symbolic of protecting the future. And it, <sighs> yes, it really is as if, um, each kaiju is like representative of a social problem facing Japanese people. Mm. And like I had mentioned before about like the cross culture um, similarities in horror, like we have the slashers from the 80s that rear their deformed 
strange bodies in the shape of like Freddy Krueger and Jason mm-hmm. and Michael Myers and they each could represent cultural shifts at the time and the same can be applied to this concept with kaiju for so I think sure that's very interesting to um use Godzilla and Hidora in that way mm. I think it's very cool yeah I love that Okay, so let's get into our final thought. The anti-capitalist messages in Mothra and the damage large corporations inflict on common people in Hidora. Yeah. According to Brooke Okazaki and Sean Rhodes, quote, no longer limited to critiques of American militarism, the films confronted contemporary issues concerning the environment, unchecked capitalism, and women's liberation. And of course nuclear proliferation now within the context of the intensifying cold war mothra and her title vehicle and her later heroic turn versus godzilla comes to represent both nature and the feminine she's a monstrous symbol at odds with rapid post-war industrialization and the greedy pursuit of capital activities destructive to nature and coded as masculine in the movies We first situate Mothra and Mothra vs. Godzilla within the context of 1960s Japan, with a particular focus on industrialization and gender roles. Then we expound on the films themselves, paying particular attention to the narratives, visual elements, and the role of music in effectively conveying these subtle commentaries. By examining the film's critiques of industrial expansion and the environmental repercussions, we can better appreciate Mothra and Mothra vs. Godzilla as serious works contemplating concerns relevant to the era of their production, unquote. See what I mean? These aren't just monster movies where people in costumes are fighting. Like, these have a message. Yeah. According to Okazaki and Rhodes, Hidora not only comments on Japan's pollution crisis, but the film also lashes the Japanese power structure for being unresponsive and incompetent, the scientific elite for being unable to correctly address the problems, and even the counterculture hippies for being self-absorbed and ineffective. Throughout Godzilla vs. Hidora, the film's creators critique the Japanese state as being represented by the government, the police, the media, and the military. Dangerously incompetent government officials and TV broadcasters exacerbate the problems caused by Hedorah, unquote. So these, both these movies deal with people in power who have caused pain and hurt to either women, indigenous people, or just the common man in japan which i think is pretty powerful so abby can you talk about how corporations produce the most pollution and how they suck thanks (laughs) you know i love tearing capitalism a new asshole whenever possible so yeah (laughs) all right so according to the environmental performance index at yale Japan now comes in hot at 12 out of 180 countries. This is like taken on a um, on a scale. So 12 out of 180. Um, 
that means they've really cleaned up their act as far oh. as environmental concerns. Well, there you go. And um, the Hedora movie worked. <laughs> yeah. So for anyone who is curious, also, the U.S. is ranked at 24. So <laughs> Japan outperforms us when it comes to environmental awareness, which really, when you think about it, is pretty bananas, especially after um, what I'm about to tell you. Because uh, we had our own industrial revolution, sure. But... Um, it was nowhere near as bad as what Japan went through. Um, so according to AsianStudies.org, Japan's post-war economic development made a tremendous impact on the national and global environment. Like China today, Japan in the 1950s and 1960s expanded rapidly and pursued growth at almost any cost. Rapid growth and unbridled pollution led to Japanese citizens demanding change and environmental protection in the 1970s. By the mid-1970s, extensive programs for environmental protection were implemented. Japan succeeded in protecting the environment and continued to grow during the 1970s and 1980s until the burst of the bubble economy in the 1980s slowed allocation of resources for environmental protection. So they kind of had like an up-down moment where they were doing really, really well, and then they kind of like fell off the wagon a little bit, but they're back up there now. So they're like pretty um pretty staunchly moving forward in the environmental protection realm but anywho so this led to the creation of the first environmental agency in japan in the year of our lord godzilla 1971 <laughs> the same year hedora was released coincidence oh <laughs> i think that um <laughs> But before we start celebrating, though, let's talk about what the Japanese people were experiencing every day as a result of environmental distress before this action was taken. So there were four big diseases that popped up around Japan. We already talked about the uh, Yokachi asthma, but there was also Minimata disease, Itaitai disease, and Nigata Minimata disease. So... According to a 2018 article by Masano Atsuko, Japan's four major pollution-related illnesses were all products of the post-war era of rapid economic growth and industrialization, a time when public health was sacrificed to economic prosperity because, you know capitalism um times have changed yet seven and a half years after the fukushima daiichi disaster the lessons from those earlier tragedies bear repeating um the author says the first is to heed early signs of trouble in each of the four pollution cases plants and animals were affected first so in both areas hit by minimata disease the effect of mercury contamination was apparent first to local fishermen who oh. complained of dwindling catches. And you kind of see the role that, like, the fishermen and that industry plays in Japan, in um, Godzilla and Mothra. Um, you know, the fishermen are, like, the first to the scene when the egg appears, and they kind of have that first stage of power. So that is a, a huge, huge industry in Japan. And the fact that like it was being effective, but they ignored it for so long is astounding to me. So 
the cadmium that caused Itaitai disease initially affected trees and rice as well as fish. In Yokachi, bad-smelling fish were an early sign of more dire problems to come. The second lesson is the need to move quickly to establish, acknowledge, and address the causes instead of delaying action while the problem spreads and escalates. Many fish were found dead in an incident in Minimata Bay back in 1952, four years before the first cases of Minimata disease were reported. Mm. Although effluent from Chiso's chemical plant was the obvious suspect, no chemical analysis were carried out at the time. In 1957, after the outbreak of Minimata disease, Kumamoto Prefecture sought to mobilize the Food Sanitation Act to impose a ban on fishing in Minimata Bay, but the Ministry of Health and Welfare refused to allow the ban without clear evidence that all the fish and shellfish in the area were contaminated. So it's like, yeah, how much more proof do you need? Like, listen to the scientists, my dudes. <laughs> this happened just a few years after the original Godzilla movie came out, which is yeah. kind of interesting, too. Yep. Hmm. So, in an academic paper written by Yoshiro Hoshino... They state, during the first phase of high economic growth in the 1950s, the greatest environmental pollution problem was caused by dust and other airborne particulate matter. The main source of energy at that time was coal. Dust collectors and other methods of um, particulate matter control were either not provided or not working, and all of the chimneys belched forth black smoke. The situation continued into the next decade, so that by 1961, a major iron and steel complex in Yahata, northern Kyushu, was pouring 27 tons of particulate matter per day into the city's air. No. Yeah. And in Kawasaki City, situated in the Tokyo Bay industrial area, the amount was 23 tons. Oh, my God. Yeah. So along with the black smoke, there was a great amount of red smoke that spread over the sky. After the close of the Second World War, production technologies changed and the oxygen blast furnace was introduced. Um, This made it possible to produce a better quality steel, Mm -hmm. but the reaction byproducts included a great deal of particulate iron oxide, which was scattered far and wide. So that's where you get that, like, red smog from. Um, And if you ever see pictures of it, it's very scary looking. Like, it's it's very creepy. I just pulled up some right now, and I'm just like... Wow, it looks like a horror movie. Yeah, yeah. It's uh imagine like seeing that every single day and living with that and being like oh. Imagine going to school and being told not to breathe. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Holy cats. Uh, so soon after that the LD oxygen blast furnace was invented in Austria and this produced even better quality steel by blowing oxygen into the furnace. However, this method also caused the release of a large amount of red smoke and um, iron oxide particulates. Uh, 
But Japanese industrial applications of the furnace did not include the use of dust collectors. My God. (laughs) They were like, yes, we have this fancy new way of creating more, better steel, but fuck the dust collectors. (laughs) (laughs) So because of this, the amount of pollution from red smoke particulate matter greatly increased. So basically you have all of these corporations and like steel and energy producers to blame for the blight of literally everything in Japan from the mm. fishing industry to the rice that people used to live and feed their families and sell um, in order to create an income. Um, you had kids developing asthma um, all of the fish were dying. Like, it mm. was bad. It was so bad. And it happened so quickly that they were like, we are fucked if we don't do something right now. So that kind of led to the formation of all of these environmental agencies. And they were like, okay, we need to, like, staunchly practice good environmentalism. Otherwise, we're all going to die. So it was a serious bee's knees. Yeah. Well... Yeah, gee whiz. That just like, <laughs> that like stressed me out so much. I know, I know. <laughs> I'm, I am distressed. <laughs> <laughs> Holy cats, you know. Yeah, sorry everybody. Go, uh, go do some mindfulness meditation after that. <laughs> <laughs> I would, I was about to say, please recycle, but it's not our fault. It's these corporations. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Ones. They're the ones that cause the most pollution. Yep. Yep. They cause the most pollution and they, you know, I mentioned earlier that, you know, Mothra was this, is this incredible girl boss, whatever. It's wonderful, I guess. Um, But there is speculation that she was created in order to get more female audiences interested in kaiju films. Hmm. So she is sort of being maybe used as a way to get the cha-ching female money, you know? Yeah. And, uh, you know, because there's her merchandise and there's her music and all that stuff. And it's just like, you know, these corporations, not only do they pollute, but they sort of, they don't treat people, right, like human beings. Everything has a dollar sign on it. And, oh, yeah. Including Mothra. Including you the know. little priestesses, too, when yeah, they the open Sobe the box gym. and they start talking and the guy's like, oh, I'll give you a million. And it's like, no, they're right. They're living beings. Like, right. you can't this put is... a price tag on that. Well, right. This is like re- very reminiscent of human trafficking. Yes. And yes. that's sort of what the Shobijin represent in that sense as well like they're actually in mothra's first movie they're the ones that are captured rather than mothra's egg and mothra has to save them in her first movie they're forced to perform and they're forced to like dance basically in front of humans and mothra like in her larva stage like tries to save them then she creates her cocoon and then she becomes her the moth form the final form and then she rescues the shobijin yeah um and this one yeah they still kind of talk about that how you know they the the greedy businessmen from happy what happy amusement park which is ironically yeah. named happy enterprises um, that's right happy enterprises <laughs> uh they 
uh, want the show they they they, again the shobijin aren't safe like they want to buy the shobijin after they show up asking for mothra's egg back yeah and uh they chase them around the room and like try to find them it's very weird and it's very scary and it's just like you know like these corporations treat women and especially indigenous women poorly yep um but i think like in a meta way mothra was sort of created by toho studios to get women interested in buying mothra merchandise so it's sort of a catch-22 where mothra is this amazing character but was she made to just get money it is a catch-22 because i also feel like she's representative of this like ancient ancient like spirit of the strength of women and like Mm those who identify as female and Mm. it's it's very sad that like it is like repackaged and sold in that way Mm -hmm. instead of just being like here here's like a lovely tribute to the spirit of like women and what they contribute to the world right (laughs) it's like right no it has to make money yeah so there's this weird like catch-22 in that sense um yeah going to end this uh with a quote from okazaki and Rhodes for their book japan's green monsters it's a great book you gotta read it i <laughs> ate that shit up it was so good um so okazaki and Rhodes say in the 1961 film mothra which is the mothra's first film before mothra versus godzilla mothra establishes significant musical and thematic elements most notably the Mothra song. The association between nature and the feminine and the critical examination of unchecked capitalism. The diametric opposition of environmentalism and capitalism is another core concept of eco-critical theory, placing the Mothra franchise's critique of unstrained capitalism firmly within the environmentalist framework. The 1964 sequel, Mothra vs. Godzilla, perfects these themes and weaves them into a tight narrative embellished with monster battles. This combination is compelling, unquote. And then, according to uh, Brad Gulkson, quote, Godzilla vs. Hedora is not a film often listed amongst the essential kaiju experiences, but I would argue that it contains a heart more aligned with the original spirit than most. Bono believed that our art should speak truth and that Godzilla was a weapon at our disposal and one that should be wielded with purpose, unquote. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's it for this month's episode of Good Morning, Nancy. Thank you all for listening. Uh, If you're not already interested in Godzilla movies, I hope this got you interested because I'm super interested now and I can't wait to watch more. Definitely. My son loves these movies too, so movie night. (laughs) Yeah, both your sons do, according to that picture that you sent of the little baby. (laughs) <laughs> he was intrigued he's like oh Mothra <laughs> uh, so if you love what we do please consider becoming a patron Abby and I work really hard on this show without any help from researchers or editors unless someone like Amber says hey I'll help you since you're so busy 
Aww. Thanks, Amber. Yeah, Amber helped us out of the goodness of their heart. So thank you, Amber. So yeah, let us know how much you appreciate our work and head on over to patreon.com slash goodmorningnancy. If Patreon isn't your deal, you can also show us your support by checking out our merch shop. We've got coffee mugs, sweatshirts, t-shirts, and more. So yeah, head on over to our merch shop. The link is in our bio as well as our uh, link for Patreon. So yeah, check it out. Yeah, and we know times are tough right now, so a free way to help the show is following us on social media, Twitter at GoodMorningNan and Instagram at GoodMorningNancyPodcast. Don't forget to also tell a friend and spread the word about our show, please, and thank you. Yes. Listen, Black Lives Matter. What What are we doing here? What is happening? How often do people have to yell this at the top of their lungs to get this get this right yeah you know what happened in buffalo i'm i live in buffalo currently what happened in buffalo was white supremacy domestic terrorism and this fucking needs to stop i'm i as a white person i'm fucking sick of it i can't even imagine what it would be like to be black and having to go through this time and time and time again that's all i have to say it's got to be stopped. It's been it's been really hard here in Buffalo. It's been really sad and it's been it's been not good. So, yeah, let's protect people. Let's protect our fellow humans and let's shout from the rooftops that black lives matter over and over again until somebody fucking listens. Okay? And listen, trans lives matter as well. Of course. So, check out this episode's show notes to see how you can help. We love you all to death. Have a good morning. Bye.